I'm going to concentrate on Paul's time in Athens, partly because I can show you some of my holiday slaps. From, no, early, no. I was there earlier this year doing some talks, and I got an afternoon off to go and visit the Acropolis, so I thought I could share some pictures with you. Uh, and then we'll do a flashback to how Paul went from persecutor to preacher at the appropriate moment uh, during his uh, talk in Athens that recorded in Luke. I um, thought you'd be interested in a couple of relatively recent archaeological uh, tidbits of information about Paul. Um, both of these are from 2009. And there's been the traditional site of Paul's tomb in Rome, in the Roman Basilica of St. Paul's. Um, but Pope Benedict in 2009, uh, on uh, the feast day of St. Paul uh, and a service there, uh, revealed that they had recently been doing some scientific analysis of the tomb. They'd opened it up very carefully for the first time and got in some probes and had a look around. And uh, There were some fragments of bone in there, which they did some carbon-14 dating on um, by experts who were unaware of their origin, determined to belong to a person who lived between the 1st and 2nd centuries. So, so this seems to confirm the unanimous and unopposed tradition that these are the mortal remains of the Apostle Paul. So it's not a knockdown uh, proof, but it's a little bit of confirmatory uh, evidence that that is indeed uh, the tomb of St. Paul. And the, the second uh, announcement of 2009 was the discovery of the earliest portrait of St. Paul. Uh, here, it was uh, early 4th century AD fresco, found during restoration works in the catacombs of St. Thacla in Rome. And there he is portrayed uh, with his beard in sort of traditional uh, philosopher style. So, uh, in Acts, uh, written by Luke in about 63 AD, he records, while Paul, uh, this is not Paul, I didn't do any time travel, uh, on my trip, but Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and we can work out from the, the chronology of Paul's travels that he had a period of several months uh, from January through to March in AD 50 uh, in uh, Athens. So he had a, a good time there uh, to study the culture, it becomes very clear, and to uh, dialogue uh, with people, as Luke says. But uh, he was greatly distressed, we're told, to see that the city was full of idols. Here, for example, is the uh, famous uh, Acropolis uh, Temple to Athene uh, there in Athens. Uh, so a city full of gods of one kind and another. As Peter Kreeft says, an idol is anything that's not God but's treated as God. Uh, any creature set up as our final end and hope and meaning and joy. Uh, so today we don't tend to idol worship in quite the same way as the ancient Athenians did. Um, but we still, if we don't put God at the centre of our worldview on a, on a biblical description of things, we inevitably end up putting something else in the, the centre of our thinking about life and we uh, become idol worshippers. Since an idol's not God, no matter how sincerely or passionately it's treated as God, it's bound to break the heart of its worshipper sooner or later. Good motives for idolatry can't remove the objective fact that an idol is an unreality. You can't get blood from a stone or divine joy from non-divine things. So Paul's being upset about this idol worship is completely compatible uh, with him uh, having loving motives 
uh, towards the Athenians for being upset. Uh, he's upset about the, uh, the, the idol worship of the Athenians. Uh, this doesn't mean that he is uh, down or against the Athenians per se. So he reasoned or dialogued uh, is the, the root of the, the term behind this in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, Greeks. Uh, <laughs> as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened uh, to be here. Here's a, a photo of the marketplace in ancient Athens. Uh, this was his typical way of going about things. Um, in Philippians, Paul writes of how he spends his time defending and confirming the gospel. Earlier on in Acts, Luke talks about Paul uh, reasoned and how he explained and how he was proving uh, the gospel to people. And then later on in Acts, we're told that every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. It wasn't called Christianity yet. Uh, so Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture halls of Tyrannus. So there he is reasoning in the synagogue and in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be here. The, the agora, the marketplace, the place of assembly uh, in ancient Greek city-states. Uh, originally it was where the, uh, the citizens would gather for military duty or to hear uh, statements of the ruling council or king. Uh, but then it also later began to serve uh, as a marketplace. We had stalls, we had these uh, colonnades and columns uh, around the place for a bit of uh, shade from the sun and uh, market schools set up and so on. But a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with, with Paul. Uh, some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? <laughs> Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. <laughs> Uh, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, Anastasia standing up again. Uh, and they thought that Jesus was talking about two gods, one called Jesus and one called resurrection. Um, so uh, they had a council to deal with these things. If you wanted to have your gods recognized officially by the state so that you could have altars and, and that kind of thing, uh, temples and so on, uh, then uh, you had to uh, be registered, as it were, officially. Epicureanism is a philosophy based on the teachings of uh, the hedonist philosopher Epicurus, who was uh, a sort of deistic atomic materialist following in the, the footsteps of uh, the first atomist philosopher Democritus. Whereas Stoicism, uh, a school of philosophy founded in Athens by Zeno in the 3rd century BC, and they were more sort of panentheistic in their worldview. Uh, God was like the soul of the world to them. And they held that by becoming a sage, a sort of clear and unbiased thinker, one could set oneself free uh, from suffering and free to be able to understand the universal reason or logos, which is a term, of course, that the Bible takes over at the beginning of John's Gospel. Logos is a term from Stoic philosophy. The name Stoic derives from the porch of the Stoa uh, Poikolai in the Agora in Athens. Here's the Stoa Poikolai, decorated with mural paintings where the members of the school congregated and their lectures were held. So it's 
why Paul just naturally bumps into them one day when they're having a uh, meeting there, presumably. So they took him and brought him to the uh, meeting of the, uh, the Areopagus. And here is a, a photo at the foot of the Areopagus, and there's a, a plaque put up there with a, uh, in Greek, uh, the speech that Paul gives at the Areopagus uh, laid out there. And they said to, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. Uh, and in parenthesis, Luke adds the comment, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is a sort of very uh, uh, multicultural, uh, multi-religious kind of boiling pot of ideas still, uh, even though Athens by, by the first century has seen better days. H. Wayne House points out that it's this very council before whom Socrates famously appeared and was sentenced to death for introducing the youth of Athens to strange deities. Um, but probably by the first century, this council had lost some of its former power. Um, it's thought unlikely that Paul was actually formally on trial before this council or in danger of his life or anything, uh, but that they still had some sort of function in terms of recognising, bringing in concepts of foreign deities to be recognised within the, the city-state. And in Greek, uh, pagos, areopagos, pagos just means big piece of rock. And here's the, the pagos, big piece of rock, <laughs> uh, in Athens, where the council used to meet. It's, it's very uneven ground, but on this side of it, uh, you get more of a sort of a sloping area where you could imagine people holding a meeting. John Mark Reynolds uh, notes that in between the Great Acropolis, and this is a photo taken looking down from the Acropolis, and the marketplace down here, stood a small hill which the ancient Athenians called the Areopagus. It had served from deepest antiquity as an Athenian court. On the hill of the Areopagus, the archons, the members of the court, met, and even under the democracy, they retained some power, especially over murder and sacrilege cases. By the time of Paul, it was a favourite meeting place for intellectuals, where the judgments were more over ideas than men. So St Paul would have walked through the marketplace where philosophy was born to the hill where religious judgments had traditionally been made in the shadow of the greatest temple of the religion of Homer and of Delphi. Athens was still symbolically one of the great centres of ancient paganism and as a symbol had no equal for it contained great icons of both pagan religion and pagan philosophy. And... I can tell you now from first-hand experience, when you actually stand there on the Areopagus, looking up at the, the massive stonework, just look at the, the size of the people on here, uh, of the, the, the temples up there on the, on the mount, uh, Temple of Nike here, for example, uh, it, you realise sort of how much chutzpah St Paul must have had to stand there at this council uh, with this backdrop uh, of all this massive cultural uh, investment in their worldview, and say to them, stop worshipping these idols, get rid of all that, and worship Jesus. Um, chutzpah, indeed. Uh, so some of you will have seen this, uh, one of my favourite charts uh, before, uh, thinking about spirituality in terms of beliefs and attitudes linking to actions. 
judged by the, the truth of the beliefs, the beauty of attitudes, the goodness of actions, communicated through the, the categories of classical rhetoric, stemming from Aristotle uh, in ancient Greece, uh, of logos, pathos, and ethos. And I'll just use those categories to, to uh, help us think through what Paul is doing in his speech before the council. Divides into three parts, an exordium or introduction, uh, a probatio or proofs, and the, the conclusion, the propatio. Um, the introduction, Paul relates to the, his listener's heart through pathos. Uh, the uh, middle bit through proofs relating to the mind, talking about logos. And the conclusion, he appeals to them to actually act in a certain way on that basis uh, through ethos. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, and yes, it would have been men in this council at this time, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You could hardly miss it. Uh, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, self-confessedly. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he starts off in this introduction of their attitudes, and he's really saying, look, your, your spiritual attitudes are a good start, but it's, it's unfulfilling. And you yourself, uh, as a culture, give me a cultural sign of this unfulfilling nature of your spirituality. There is, you realise yourself, there is, there is more to be known and grasped than you have grasped. Indeed, in the 6th century BC, Athens had been plagued by a pestilence, and the despairing city leaders asked uh, Empedocles, uh, em, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, Epimenides of Crete, whom Paul actually cites in Titus 1, verse 12, if you want to look it up, Epimenides of Crete, uh, to come and help them uh, with this disaster. And his solution was to drive a herd of black and white sheep away from the Areopagus, and wherever the sheep would lie down, they would be sacrificed to the gods of that particular place. So it's like, well, we don't know where this plague is coming from. Um, Wherever the sheep go, we'll sacrifice to that god. (laughs) we kind of cover our bases in a sense Uh, the plague ceased and as uh, Diogenes Laertes describes it memorial altars with no God's name inscribed on them could be found as a result because they didn't know which God had ended the plague we've been sacrificing all over the place to anyone that will listen (laughs) anyone please save us Oh, we've been saved, but we don't know who, who, who did it. Um, also, authors uh, Pausanias in his description of Greece and Philostratus in Apollonius of Tyrana also refer to altars to an unknown god. And we actually have a, a picture here. It doesn't actually have the inscription to an unknown god, but next best thing, this, this altar found in Rome on the Palatine Hill in 1820, it has the inscription, whether to a god or goddess. So again, a sort of vague uh, inscription on an altar. So he's moving on to beliefs, 
now, the, the argument section, and he's arguing that their worldview beliefs are inadequate. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. It is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. Quote, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's a quote from the Cretan philosopher Epimenides. As some of your own poets have said, quote, we are his offspring from the Sicilian Stoic philosopher Aratus. What should we do as a consequence of this, Paul argues? You need to investigate Jesus. Because therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent, for he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul probably quoted the Creed of 1 Corinthians 15, which is uh, we saw in Peter May's excellent talk the other week. Uh, you can find it on the podcast if you weren't here. Uh, goes back to within two years and perhaps indeed within months of the resurrection. This creed was given over by Paul to the Corinthians in AD 51 and reiterated by him in AD 54 in the letter. But here we have Acts 17 depicting Paul testifying to the resurrection before the Athenians in Athens in AD 50. And just as he does in 1 Corinthians would seem likely that Paul probably added his own conversion story. What what Luke's giving us in his Areopagus speaks here is clearly a condensed form of what he said. It's the edited highlights. It would have been a very short speech otherwise. Um, In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely board, he, Jesus, appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. Later on, he says, if Christ has not been raised, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So all in all, this from Corinthians from Paul is is undisputed eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Jesus. This testimony is effectively given on oath. We're not false witnesses. We've testified about God. That would have been taken very seriously in Paul's culture. This testimony from Paul passes the criteria of embarrassment uh, because Paul talks about how he is the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. And he he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus whilst he was going there to persecute and kill Christians. And now that's not the sort of thing you make up about the pillar of the church or yourself. Um, unless you, you, you tell that sort of thing because that's the uncomfortable truth that you have to admit to because everyone knows it. This testimony is also, I would say, demonstrably sincere, at least. He might be deluded about it, but he's not lying his head off. After all, Paul himself argues, what would he gain out of that 
that lie. I'll come to that in a moment. Also, and this struck me for the first time whilst researching this, we have direct testimony from Paul um, that he saw the resurrection, Jesus. But indirectly, the, the claim to be an apostle, one of the criteria for being an apostle included that you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. So when Paul says, I'm an apostle, I know Romans 57 AD, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Um, Galatians, which might be as early as AD 48, Paul, an apostle, sent not by men or by man, but by Jesus Christ. Um, That's a claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. And that's a claim backed up with independent testimony from Luke, who in Acts describes when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of something. As Paul says, now if there is no resurrection, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? What would be my motivation for lying about this? Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes, etc. Going through shipwrecks and being in danger from Jew and Gentile alike. And we do know from Eusebius that Paul was eventually decapitated under the Emperor Nero in about 65 AD. So he he was martyred for not giving up that testimonial claim. According to Aeschylus, Apollo, the god Apollo, taught the Athenians at the founding of the Areopagus that when the dust has soaked up a person's blood, once he's dead, there is no resurrection. So it's hardly surprising that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject that Paul left the council, but some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, probably this guy here in uh, Raphael's painting of Paul in Athens, and also a woman named Damaris, this must be her, whom Damaris Trust that I work for is named after, and a number of others. So Paul's speech shows a deep interest and understanding of Greek culture that's been verified by extra-biblical sources. It's good ethos and a pathos level. Paul latches onto the Athenians' felt religious needs, their piety, their fear. He exploits points of agreement and disagreements between the Stoic and the Epicureans and the state-endorsed polytheistic religion of Athens. And in terms of logos, of argument, Paul critiques their, their philosophical theology, their concept of deity, And uh, he argues for the resurrection in a way that was sufficient to convince a number of Athenians, including a member of the Areopagus. Thank you, Peter. A few moments for questions. Lee. What's an atomist? An atomist, uh, someone who thinks uh, everything is made up of atoms, indivisible little units of matter. That's what uh, atom in Greek means. It means uncuttable. So atomic theory, the idea that... A bit confused as to why this applies to ancient thought. Well, the, the first atomist was the ancient Greek philosopher Democritus, who came up with atomic theory um, in, ooh, what, oh, I don't know, 5 or 6th century BC, something like that. Um, I don't know the precise dates, but yeah. So, um, I mean, they didn't have the, the modern scientific concept of an atom 
which has evolved over the last couple of centuries from the sort of billiard ball idea of an atom um, through through the planetary, plum pudding, planets, mathematical wave theory kind of stuff and all, all of that. But way back in the day, the ancient Greeks had this idea that if there were... If you can cut things up, but surely you can't cut it up forever, so there must be a sort of basic unit of matter, and it must be through... Maybe there are different types of these basic units, maybe they're different geometrical shapes or something, maybe they have little hooks and, I don't know, they rearrange somehow, and the rearrangements of this basic matter over the eternity that the physical world has existed for will account for everything in the physical world. Um, Yeah. Two-pronged question. Okay. Paul's apostleship. Um, so, like I said, the apostle, one of the criteria was that they had to meet the resurrected Jesus. I don't correct, like, around 40 days physically appearing to people. And then, wasn't Paul's experience after that? Yes. And also, it was nature. Um, Paul didn't actually see the physical Jesus. He had, it seemed to be like a spiritual, like some kind of visionary. Right. Thing. Okay. And I've heard people say that. Mm, Even mm. to this day, people claim to see Jesus. Mm. Then, secondly, um, um, in Luke and in 2 Peter, um, people like corroborate Paul as an apostle. But then, I don't know enough about this, mm. but I've heard that 2 Peter is one of the most like, contested battle books. Right. And Luke is written by Paul's friend. So, all this is together. Yes. Yes, certainly. So I think there was about three or four questions in there, actually. Um, <laughs> Could well be. Yeah. Um, so let's think. What was the first? So yes, Paul, uh, as he says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me as to one untimely born. I, I wasn't part of this sequence of the 40-day resurrection appearances before the ascension. I seem to have been a one-off special case. But he, I think, pretty clearly distinguishes, and, and William Lane Craig's written a good article this, you can find on his website, um, but he pretty clearly distinguishes between visionary experiences that he has and this experience on the road to Damascus of Jesus, which, although the other people with him didn't see Jesus, they did see something, hear something, the, um, uh, there was... Uh, external corroboration that something was happening as it were so it wasn't a purely subjective sort of hallucinatory or visionary kind of experience and Paul um, the language that's used to describe it is of normal seeing and Paul differentiates that from when he elsewhere talks about visionary experiences and says things like you know talking about himself I know someone who was caught up into the seventh heaven you know whether in body or out of body I don't know uh, and so on, but since he's, sta- he's staking his his claim to apostleship on seeing Jesus, his his uh, seems to be saying more than simply I had a visionary experience of Jesus, which of course lots of people can have. He's saying no, this this experience of Jesus that I have is one that qualifies me to be called an apostle. Um, which uh, Luke backs up. Yes, he's a friend of his, but. Um, you know, testimony, testimony, corroborating testimony from a friend of yours is, uh, might not be as strong a testimony as corroborating testimony from an enemy of yours, but it's better than a kick in the mouth. You know, it's, it is additional evidence. Um, you could always have stronger, <laughs> but uh, yeah. 